0: Halfway dosing, a halfway decent podcast about art history. I'm Mike.
1: And I'm Sarah.
0: And welcome to our second episode. Mm. Thank you to the tens of listeners we had in the last episode. Uh, it was all, all your feedback and text, but not anywhere else was appreciated. <laughs> uh, off the top, though, I did want to say if you guys are uh, following along at home, have a um, social media account, especially Instagram only Instagram you can check us out on there we'll post uh try to post some of the pictures of uh some of the artwork that we talk about throughout the episodes um so if you happen to listen to the one last time about Picasso and want to see some of the things we talked about so they're on our Instagram page at halfway docent so you can check that out so uh episode two Mm -hmm. we I I got a peek uh sneak peek at the artist for today one of my favorites Mm -hmm. But Sarah, why don't you tell our lovely listeners who we're talking about?
1: Yeah, we're going to be talking about Salvador Dali. I know the name. Yeah. Michael, uh, why don't you tell our listeners what you know about Mr. Dali and his work?
0: I know exactly one thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, I wouldn't even say a whole thing. It's like a half a thing. Uh, I know he does one of my favorite uh, artworks, which is, unknown name to me but it is the uh the artwork of the melting clocks and kind of like a desert mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. uh we actually got to see it when we were in new york city That's which is really cool yeah. it is incredibly small uh, i know he does a little more abstract stuff as it were but i find his stuff fascinating probably one of my favorite artists uh from some of the stuff i have seen but i don't actually know a whole lot about him
1: all right well you're gonna know a whole lot more after tonight that's what All right. I'm looking forward to. Great. So, before we start this episode, I just wanted to give a little bit of a warning um, that there might be some sexual content to this podcast.
0: We'll keep it PG 13.
1: We will, but just in case you're listening with little ears, know that there's going to be talk of the existence of sex. So, anyway. noted. All right. Are you ready to learn more about Dolly? I'm ready. Okay. So I also want to establish real quick, I don't know how much we'll get into it, but I'm going to call the artist that we're talking about by his last name, Dali, because there's a few Salvador Dali's in his family.
0: Okay. So So it's like a a family name?
1: Yeah. So when I call him Dali, you know I'm talking about the artist and not one of the family members. Okay? Sure. All right. So, he was born on May 11th in 1904 into a middle-class family in Figueres, which is a small town outside of Barcelona in Spain.
0: Can you say it the correct way?
1: Figueres.
0: No, I was talking about the other one.
1: Barcel- oh, Barcelona. Thank you. With a lisp. That's a whole thing. We won't go into it. Anyway... So um, his story starts out real sad. All right. Are you prepared? Great. Yeah. So he actually had an older brother who was born in 1901 who was named Salvador Dali and died nine months before the artist known as Dali was born.
0: So reincarnation, is that what we're looking at?
1: Funny you should mention that because his parents used to take him to his brother's gravesite and tell him about how he was the reincarnated version of his brother.
0: That's some
1: stuff. Yeah. But like, I don't know, Dali kind of embraced it. Later, he talked about it and he was, he said something about like, we were like two raindrops, but we had different reflections or something lovely like that. It was like, he had a very nice perspective on it, but like, wowza.
0: Probably definitely didn't cause some scars in his life that came out in his artwork or anything like that.
1: Right? Like, yeah. Okay. So that could be like, probably a whole episode in and of itself of like, what that trauma did to his brain but anyway Mm -hmm. so he was born his father uh was a very strict disciplinarian and atheist um while his mother was very supportive of his creativity so he kind of had a dichotomy of beliefs within his household
0: did his mother believe (laughs) in a higher power or was she also an atheist
1: yeah his mother was catholic um, and that, we'll see later, kind of influenced him to a degree. He called himself uh, religious without faith or something like that. So, yeah, it, hmm. it had an effect on him. Interesting. So at the age of six, he was enrolled in a Hispano-French school uh, of the Immaculate Conception. He learned French there, which actually ended up working really well for him since he was an artist. And we've talked about like Paris was kind of a hub of creativity. So he definitely used that language (laughs) a lot uh, as he became an artist. Um, And from a very young age, he found a lot of inspiration in the scenery around him. And a lot of those landscapes end up making their way into his art in later years. When he was twelve years old, he discovered impressionism, and that is a style of painting that originated in France. And um, it you know it because they are concerned with the visual impression of the moment uh, in terms of lighting and color. So it kind of captures a moment of light. Um, and then that fall in 1916, uh, he began attending a municipal, sorry, municipal drawing school. I always pronounce that word wrong. Fun fact. Yeah. Um, so when he was 16, his father decided that if he were going to become a painter, that he should go to Madrid and study at the fine arts school to qualify as a teacher. So his father was supportive, but also like very practical. So like if you're going to be an artist, you should at least know how to teach art so that you can earn an income if you can't.
0: Because there's no money in actually painting artwork unless you're ridiculously good.
1: Well, lucky for Dolly. Um, so the next year, when he was 17, his mother died of cancer. And he described right. that as, quote, the greatest blow I had ever experienced in my life.
0: Yeah, I Unders- gotta imagine. Understandably. Right. You, uh you are the reincarnated version of your brother and then your mother who is what it seems like maybe his inspiration for religion or any kind of faith dies of cancer so
1: yeah that's hard and not only that but the person who is like encouraging his artistic side
0: oh right she was the one who was encouraging him to paint and yeah that's tough
1: yeah yeah so the next year, um, he goes to Madrid and begins studying painting, sculpture, and engraving. Um, and this is at, it's got a Spanish name, but the Academy of San Fernando is what I'm going to call it. For- that Brevity's. sounds easier than probably what it actually <laughs> Brevity's is. Gravity's sake, yeah. Um, and Dali really mm-hmm. came of age there. He kind of found his own personal style there. It said that he kept his hair long, and dressed in the style of a uh, of 19th century garb, complete with knee long knee length breeches, and it earned him the title of a dandy. Interesting. So cool. he was just doing his own thing,
0: yeah.
1: Um, and in nineteen twenty-three, this is a year later, he was expelled from the Academy of San Fernando uh, because he was accused of having led a student protest because the painter Daniel Vasquez Diaz was not granted the chair of a chair of painting in the painting school there. So he was expelled for having being accused of having led a student protest.
0: So there was a rumor that it was him, so they kicked him out of the school? I mean, it was probably him. Oh, gotcha. (laughs) Okay, well.
1: (laughs) So uh, a couple years later, um, he had exhibitions in both Madrid and Barcelona, um, and then... In 1926 he was expelled for good from the Academy when he declared that the professor that was giving his exam was incompetent Um, and he made a giant deal about this and unfortunately for him this was his final exam before graduation so if he could have just like
0: kept his mouth been shut.
1: cool for a minute, he could have graduated, but Dude, he was just, expelled. Just shut up for
0: like a second.
1: <laughs> so that kind of gives you an idea of who we're who we're talking about here. So that same year, he went with his aunt and his sister to Paris, and he got to meet Pablo Picasso.
0: Yeah, hey, I know that guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you would like to know more and you didn't listen to our first episode, feel free to go back and listen. Uh, we talked a lot about Picasso. For like an hour
0: about Picasso. Roughly an
1: hour. Roughly an hour. Um, <clears throat> So he was there and he went to Paris, talked to Picasso, saw what the cubists were doing and was really inspired by were, that.
0: Were the cubists making cubes?
1: They weren't, but if you go back and listen to that episode, you'll see what we're talking about. Fine. Um, that same year, he also began studying the psychoanalytic concepts of Freud. Okay. So that had a huge influence on his work.
0: So it sounds like he's not only like creative, artistic, but also seems to be fairly smart.
1: Yeah, and- He's a smart guy.
0: Wants to learn and thirsty for knowledge as well.
1: Sure. He is ready to push the boundaries. I'll say that. Um, So he starts beginning, begins using these psychoanalytic concepts um, to mine his subconscious for imagery. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So his first real work in this style came in 1927 and is called The Apparatus and Hand, if you would like to Google along with us. Um, it's kind of a wild painting. We're not going to spend a, a super long time on it, but um, it's pretty abstract.
0: What's it called? The Apparatus and Hand. And Hand. Ah, gotcha.
1: Yeah. So the apparatus is the figure in the middle, which is basically like a human body. And then it's surrounded by various other torsos and other figures. Um, I read somewhere that the hand is supposed to symbolize, I think they called it onerism, which is uh self-pleasuring
0: oh sure
1: sure um
0: that's uh that is a painting
1: yeah so there's like there's a lot of symbolic imagery um and it has that sort of dreamlike landscape that he becomes known for
0: well looking at the the painting i can see like the mountains in the background kind of remind me a little bit of some of his landscaping from uh, I cheated. It's called the persistence of memory. (laughs) I'm a good cheater, Uh, but yeah. So even the, just the background of that, I kind of start to see the style that persists throughout his, some of his other artwork.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, like I said earlier, that landscape of his youth kind of, flows through his whole career. You see kind of some of those mountains, some of those cliffs, some of those wild kind of empty landscapes um, that they say came from his Catalonian youth.
0: Ah, the Catalonian youth. (laughs) So in
1: 1929, uh, he partners with someone named Louis Bunuel, Yeah, absolutely. B-U-N-E-L. On a film called Un Chien Andalou, which meant an Andalusian dog.
0: An illusion dog?
1: An Andalusian. Okay. De Andalou? I don't know what that means, actually. But it was a 17-minute film. Quote incoherent as a dream and it was a bunch of vignettes um, that were kind of free association kind of strung together and um, used a lot of montage one of the scenes I will admit I only watched the first I don't know maybe five minutes of it Um, but in the first couple of minutes um, there's a scene where a man Slices a woman's eye with a razor blade.
0: Holy cow!
1: Yeah, I mean, but it's like 1929, and they obviously didn't actually slice a woman's eye open with a razor blade, so there is a little bit, there is a little bit of like, oh, that's in a real eye, okay? (laughs) But it's still kind of disturbing, even to a modern viewer. But um,
0: Well, I mean, he was delving into the depths of his psyche for things.
1: Yeah. So the subject matter was considered so sexually and politically shocking that Dali sort of became infamous because of this. Hmm. And in 1929, uh, the Surrealists, who we'll talk about Surrealism in a minute, um, but they... Considered recruiting them to their, at the time, pretty small circle. Um, and so um, there were a few people who came to visit him, including Paul Ilyard and his wife Gayla, Renee Magritte and his wife Georgette. Um, they all came to visit him, and Dolly was instantly taken by Gayla, and they actually ended up having an affair which resulted in her divorcing Eliard. And she became Dahlia's lifelong muse and eventually his wife and business manager.
0: So that actually worked out long term for them?
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. He, um. Yes. He was married to her until she died. So. I don't know. I don't know what that means.
0: It probably doesn't mean a lot but it's interesting and unusual
1: she probably for most of his paintings if there's a female figure that's who she he was painting
0: would you say in the art world in general uh relate well maybe i am presuming things that are not true but i feel like a lot of the stories i hear from the art world remind me of stories i hear from like hollywood where couples just don't actually last long term you don't see a lot of long-term relationships that uh some famous painter stays with a woman for a long time
1: i mean i think it depends on the The artist, I mean, it's just like Hollywood. I mean, there are some people who've been married for years and years and years, and then you have the people who marry and divorce in two years or whatever.
0: I guess they're all just people, so. Sure. Okay, fair enough.
1: But for both Dali and Magritte, who, if our listeners don't know, Magritte was also a a surrealist painter um, who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point because he's one of my favorites. Um, For both of them, their wives were their muse. Like their whole life so if there's a female figure they were painting their wife so
0: it's kind of uh kind of cute
1: i mean i guess if you're into that kind of thing i don't know
0: all all the woodworking i do you are my muse
1: okay cool all right i really i'm sure i really resemble those beams that you're building
0: they're ornate Mm
1: mm-hmm um so his father did not approve of his relationship with Gala. Uh, she was 10 years older than Dolly, and um, it really it, it was the final straw for his father because when Dolly was quoted in a newspaper at saying, quote, "Sometimes I spit for fun on my mother's portrait," which, I think was more of a, he was making a statement not about his mother, but a more of a political statement, but his father didn't see it that way, and he banished him from the family home at the end of
0: 1929,
1: well, which I kind of get.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's
1: you know,
0: it's a little bit about knowing people's personality and how you can communicate with them. Obviously, Dali didn't give a fuzz about his father's personality and how he took things he just was going to do things his way
1: right well and i doubt when he said it to the newspaper he was thinking about how his dad would take it sure that's he was talking to an audience um but he and gala married five years later so 1934 uh freud's ideas strongly influenced the french poet andre breton who launched the Surrealist Movement. So he was kind of like the founder in 1924.
0: As a poet, he was the founder? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, the Surrealist Movement was all kinds of artists. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And he actually was the one who published the Manifesto of Surrealism. And within that manifesto, Breton uh, defined Surrealism as, quote, pure psychic automatism, the dictation of thought in the absence of all control, exercised by reason and outside all moral and aesthetic concerns.
0: That was a lot of words. It
1: is a lot of words. So Dali took that concept and went further with it. So he created his own method, which he called the Paranoic Critical Method, which was a method that he thought an artist could tap into their subconscious to, quote, systematize confusion and thereby contribute to a total discrediting of the world of reality.
0: I heard confusion in there, and he nailed that part. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, just with that definition, though.
1: Basically, he believed that he had this special ability to see things as both a rational being and an objective artist and also as a paranoid person and could, like, marry these two worlds. Whoa. He thought that he was not mad but could participate in paranoic delirium both as an actor and a spectator.
0: I'm not crazy, but, like, I understand crazy, is what you're <laughs> That's saying. That's basically
1: yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, um, after emerging from one of his, quote-unquote, paranoid states, Dali would paint what he had witnessed, um, and these oftentimes culminated in works of vastly unrelated but realistically painted objects, um, sometimes intensified by the use of optical illusion. And that really kind of embodies what surrealism is. Like, it's very realistic, but also dreamlike and weird and not realistic.
0: So it's like the idea of, like, you wake up from a dream and you're like, it was really weird when my arm was over there doing that thing. Wait, hold on. Arms don't do that. Exactly. That's ridiculous. Okay,
1: Perfect. Yes. Um, He believed that his viewers would intuitively connect with his work because the subconscious language was universal, is what he believed. Yeah, sure. This is a quote. Ready? Uh, It speaks the vocabulary of the great vital constants, sexual instinct, feeling of death, physical notion of the enigma of space. These vital constants are universally echoed in every human.
0: Interesting. I mean, I kind of get it. Right. There's definitely some weird truth there, but
1: right. I mean, yes, but also like, hmm, are you on drugs? Maybe a little. Right. Or do you need to be on drugs? So to appreciate uh, his work. It's possible.
0: So say I've, I've listened to some people talk about um doing mushrooms and like (laughs) the psychedelics and the uh how it opens your mind and that kind of stuff it kind of sounds kind of a precursor to the hippie movement the psychedelic movement that happened in the 70s yeah 60s sure
1: yeah he kind of had a a finger on that pulse so Dali had really found his style, uh, his language and form of expression that would go on to define him, which was kind of a mixture of both vanguard and tradition. So some of the things that became regular subjects for him were bodies, bones, symbolic objects that reflected the sexualized fears and father figures and impotence, All these kind of Freudian ideas that you might have all kind of found their way into Dolly's art.
0: Weird. Now I want to like go back through and study (laughs) Dolly's art art more and see what I can discover he was trying. uh, I'm not going to ever figure that out, but uh, it'd be interesting at least.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I promised that we would. I'm going to hear, we're going to talk about A little more about surrealism so it is the art style in which the reality of the dream or the subconscious mind is seen as more real in quotes than the surface reality of everyday life its reality is a higher reality
0: so it's almost like the idea of uh, we live in a multi multiverse where Our subconscious is more real than what we are living day to day.
1: Yeah. We're basically, it's the matrix.
0: Sure. Yeah,
1: (laughs) definitely the matrix.
0: I have Um, a little blue pill for you.
1: Exactly. Dali, this I think is so lovely. Dali called surrealist paintings, quote, hand-painted dream photographs.
0: Hmm. I mean, I get it if you look at his paintings like well especially persistence of memory the one that always pops to mind it looks like a photograph from a dream
1: yeah so speaking of the persistence of memory that was painted in 1931 and it was staged at his first individual ex exhibition at the Galerie pierre collet i have no idea yes in paris it's french i don't speak french um, and part of that exhibition was persistence of memory.
0: Oh, uh, real quick. I did want to correct. I said the blue pill. What I meant was the red pill. The blue pill you remain in, in ignorance. The red pill. Nobody cares. Okay. Um. Moving on.
1: So let us talk about the persistence of memory.
0: Yes, let us.
1: All right. So you, we saw it this summer when we went to new york we did what do you remember about it
0: it's very small
1: it is small
0: it is very small uh it's (laughs) i remember the main takeaway yeah is it small pretty much uh it was kind of like a desert like scene Mm -hmm. there is several different clocks around i always think about that the clock that's hanging on the limb of the branch, yep. of the tree. Yeah. Um, is there a horse in there? I have not looked it up in a in a in a minute.
1: So. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and do that?
0: Hold on, I'm and our taking listeners
1: notes. can do the same. The persistence of memory. Yeah. So we are talking about the size of it. It is nine and a half by thirteen inches. So just a little bit bigger than a regular piece of paper.
0: Oh, there's kind of like a horse-like figure in the bottom, it looks like, where the uh, clock resembles a saddle.
1: Wait, say what?
0: You don't see that?
1: Oh, where the clock resembles a saddle. So most people describe that as a slug-like creature.
0: Slug, horse, whatever. Um, A slug is just a horse without legs. (laughs)
1: You're ridiculous. Go on. So that figure is actually supposed to be Dolly's face. You can see an eye with the eyelashes and a nose. Possibly a gross tongue coming out of the nose.
0: That is a face like... I can't even think of a good example that is as ridiculous as that being a face. I guess if you Can squint you real it? hard. I mean, you,
1: I mean, it's kind of like a half face, sure. right? Think of like a phantom mask. Phantom of the Opera mask.
0: Sure. Bonkers.
1: <clears throat> so there's a lot of things in this painting. Um, and it is kind of an empty space. Time has... Either ended or lost its meaning. Hmm. If you look, all of the clocks in the painting are pointed to different times.
0: I mean, you say, but you can only see. Well, yeah, okay, I can okay. kind of see it, but you can only. Okay, always, you I'm can. right, maybe. So whatever. Maybe I did some research. Sure. I mean, that's <laughs> that might be, but. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I was going to say two of the clocks, you only see one of the hands, but that's probably irrelevant. It's fine.
1: So um, there is a watch that hangs over the dead tree branch. Yes. That springs up from this architectural blocky form. Then there's another watch hangs over the edge of the block surface. And um, there's a small watch that ants swarm over, which kind of implies that it's like a something organic that is decaying. Um, and that's kind of a theme throughout Dolly's work as well. There's a lot of ants and flies. Um, there's actually a scene in the film that we talked about earlier that um there's a there's a <laughs> it's supposed to be a realistic hand the fact that it was made in 1929 and doesn't have modern special effects you can tell is like a plaster form of a hand that the palm is has like a hole in it and there's a bunch of ants like coming up through it like ants were like a symbol for dolly
0: i bet if he'd have been a little bit older he'd have been a big dave matthews fan
1: Don't even... Because of ants marching Michael Andrew. Good grief.
0: Hey, you know what? That's what I'm here for. (laughs) No one said they were going to be quality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the fact that these ants are here almost implies that there's like rot and waste happening in this otherwise pretty pristine landscape. Um, there is, <laughs> back in the day, uh, after Dali had painted this, it was years later, he recounted that um, he got the idea for the painting in the soft, quote-unquote, soft watches, and, um, in the remains of a very strong Camembert cheese.
0: He he was inspired (laughs) by cheese?
1: Like a melting cheese. Yeah, I mean, if you look at those clocks, they could be a melting cheese, Michael.
0: So we don't know for sure that he dabbled with psychedelics, but probably. Eh, Maybe. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, okay, granted, He really liked like prying open the mind and looking inside. But that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of this painting is kind of an uncanny juxtaposition between the ordinary, this landscape that's normal and plain,
0: normal adjacent
1: and like clocks are maybe the most boring thing right yeah but he kind of makes them bizarre and weird and uncomfortable and i think that's part of what makes this whole painting exciting and interesting is it makes us feel like things are not in sync
0: yeah yeah it's two very different worlds the plain normal-ish world with the weird melted clocks
1: yeah And the weird weird slug weird cheese face clock. thing in the middle you don't really know what to make of it
0: you stepped on my cheese clock joke
1: i'm sorry no it was a bad joke
0: a yes clock. the weird the weird slug covered in a cheese clock
1: also a, a quick note that the cliffs in the distance are uh the Cliffs of Catalonia.
0: Uh I was going to say the Cliffs of Insanity, but that's probably more <laughs> realistic.
1: Uh, mine's more real, yes, if that's what you're asking. Yes. So, in 1934, um, there was an exhibition in New York that included this piece, The Persistence of Memory, and the exhibit was very well received, and Dolly basically became an instant sensation in the U.S. And, um moma which is the do you want to say it michael
0: no you can do it we can do it at the same time (laughs) we can do it no we're not going to do that
1: (laughs) it's the museum of modern art um and there's an exhibition on fantastic art dada and surrealism which we haven't talked about dada before it kind of came out of world war one it was about kind of like making satire and nonsensical art out of that kind of dire situation. We'll talk about it eventually, I'm sure.
0: Uh, did not know that was a thing. I thought you were talking about like an artist named Dada <laughs> or one of the Teletubbies. I don't know. It's hard to say.
1: <laughs> Dada is an art movement. We'll talk about it eventually. I promise. Okay. Cool. Um, But in 19... 19- okay, so... Just to recap, Persistence of Memory was created in 1931. In 1934, MoMA has an exhibit and acquires the painting.
0: Dang. A museum acquired a painting that had been out for three years.
1: Yeah, and they still have it, and that's where we saw it.
0: That is, I can confirm, that is true. That is where we saw it.
1: It seems real wild to me. I mean, I don't know what the normal timeline for that kind of thing is, but that seems real crazy.
0: Yeah, usually a museum acquires something that uh, the person has at least been dead.
1: Right? I don't know. It's crazy. I mean, maybe that just speaks to what a crazy, ridiculous piece of art this is. Okay, so also in 1934... Uh, Dali gets expelled from the Surrealist group because of his political views and Dali in response replies I myself am Surrealism
0: he just is he embodies (laughs) Surrealism
1: he just is you can't quit me I am your group
0: (laughs) you can't quit me I am me (laughs) Kind
1: of. Point. Um, and he, was, he wasn't wrong, really. Um, but in the following years, he used sort of more traditional painting styles, uh, though a lot of his subject matter and themes remain just as bizarre and emotional as ever. And his popularity grew in the U.S., and he also became started be- being demanded by rich and famous people, For example, in 1938, Coco Chanel invited Dali to her home where he painted the landscapes of her property, as one does.
0: Yeah, I totally, I had this guy over the other day who was painting our backyard.
1: Sure, as we all do.
0: Who the heck, it's fine.
1: Um, Later that year, he also got to meet Sigmund Freud that was like a real big deal for him. He did a portrait for him and Freud was like, this is actually not that bad. It was basically his quote. And Freud er, and uh, Delhi was like, this is awesome. That's <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what he sounded like too. So don't even worry about it.
0: It's like when I hear uh, podcasters, I really like talking to famous people that they really like. It's like, but you're... It's a weird, like, dichotomy of everybody likes somebody. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Also, the fact that Freud was still alive at that point. Yeah. And he got to meet him.
1: Well, and that's the other thing. Like, I mean, I know it's 2020 now, but, like, 1938, was that... That was not that long ago. It yeah. seems like Dolly, you know, he's, like, this classical... Anyway, so... Around that same time, he also met this guy named Sir Edward James. He was a wealthy British poet, um, and he not only purchased Dali's work, but also supported him financially for two years. And one of the things he created for James's home was the May West Lips Sofa, which I would invite you to look up if you don't already know it. If you've ever seen a sofa that looks like a pair of lips, that's probably it.
0: Yep. Uh, It's lips.
1: It's lips. And it's a sofa. And it's amazing. I think this is one of the best things that he's made. I think it's so great. Of all the things, (laughs) this
0: is one of the best things he's made.
1: I think it's great. It's
0: a sofa that looks like a mouth.
1: Listen, I think it's great. I mean, it's so intuitive. You have the back, which is the curly part, and the... it's wonderful. Anyway, look it up, please, everybody. Or thank you.
0: Or head on over to Halfway Docent Instagram. Oh my
1: gosh, is this a plug in the middle of our podcast? Sorry,
0: no, it's not.
1: Okay, should I go on? Yes. Okay. All right. After World War II, Dolly and Gala returned to the U.S. in 1940 where they stayed for eight years and they split their time between New York and California. Dolly became very highly productive and he did all kinds of different media. He designed jewelry, he made clothing, he designed furniture, as we've talked about. He designed sets for ballets and even some store display windows. And he and Gala went to Hollywood um, a lot of people thought they would become movie stars because of their popularity and kind of his craziness seemed very Hollywood. Well, he, uh,
0: and he had experience with that one real weird movie he yeah, did.
1: Yeah, he made some films. Um, but he did design, there's an Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock movie called Spellbound, in which there's this dream sequence. You can actually look it up, just the dream sequence on YouTube, and... It is actually kind of a guy who's in a psychologist or psychiatrist, I don't know the difference, Uh, office talking about this dream that he had. And um, it's real strange and seems very Dolly esque. When you see it, you're like, oh yeah, our boy definitely did that. He actually also collaborated with Walt Disney to create an animated film called Destino. And due to financial difficulties, the it was never actually finished until 2003. This is also something wow. you can find on YouTube. I don't know if this is illicit YouTube or not, but if you look up Destino, D-E-S-T-I-N-O, you can find it. And it is very strange you can definitely see that it was finished in two thousand three because there are things in it that you're like, Oh, they couldn't have made that back in the day. But it is um very interesting. So in nineteen forty eight they return to Port Yagat, which was this small fishing village where back in nineteen twenty nine when Dali was kicked out of his family he bought this house there. And as the years went on, he continued to buy up the surrounding houses. And so when they moved back in 1948, it was this grand villa. And he continued to evolve his style. He explored optical illusions and negative space and visual puns. He kind of moves away from surrealism a little bit and kind of turns more toward a classic style. So the years between 1948 and 1970, he made roughly one monumental painting, and that's one that was at least five feet long Whoa. and took about a year to create. Dang. And in this time, he was very concerned with scientific, historical, and religious themes. Um, And his studio actually had a special slot built into the floor that allowed a huge canvas like that to be raised and lowered as he worked on it. Jeez. Yes, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, And so in the 1940s and 50s, and especially his art focused on religious and supernatural themes... And he was trying to merge themes of art and science. One such painting is one that we actually saw at the museum, mm, the Museum of Modern Art, or was it at the Met? I
0: think it was at the Met. I
1: kind of don't remember. Um, it was called the Crucifixion, or in parentheses, Corpus Hypercubus. And this is a painting depicting Christ crucified on a tesseract, which, and I barely understand this, so I'm going to describe it as well as I can. Just like a cube is a bunch of squares that are folded up. Um, this is like unfolding a cube. No, that's squares. What's what I just said. This is like, if, Cubes are the squares in the unfolding of a cube. It's like a bunch of cubes that make up a bigger figure.
0: So it's like as you unfold a square, each or as you unfold a cube, each square becomes a cube.
1: Not. Okay, it's kind of. Kind of. Oh, just look it up, please. <laughs>
0: oh, It'll be on the Instagram I feed. I feel a
1: bad time describing things.
0: No, no I, it, it is kind of like that, though. It's kind of like if you take a, a cube and unfold it. Kind of but then each one of those squares that make up the cube becomes a square itself.
1: <clears throat> right. So
0: it's a cross made out of cubes.
1: Kind of. yes. Yes. Say that. Um, so this was a nod to his belief that science and religion were not mu- mutually exclusive. Um, he had an increased interest in nuclear science after Hiroshima. And kind of was diving into his Catholic background at Mm. the time. Interesting. And so he kind of was kept doing these paintings that kind of tried to marry those two ideas, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more depth of that painting if you want to kind of dive deeper. But um, I don't know that we have time for it right now. But... It's kind of interesting. Yeah,
0: for sure, it's interesting. It he is a. The more I learn about uh, Salvador Dali, the more I, a like him, and B am fascinated by uh, his stuff.
1: Yeah. So something about Dali, while he was working on these like year long projects, he was kind of elusive. Um, while he was working in the studio. But he would emerge occasionally to create what he called manifestations. And they were these like weird, provocative, performance-based stunts. Um, So here are a few of them. One, uh, he sipped from a swan's egg as ants emerged from inside the shell.
0: Gross.
1: Yeah. Ants. I don't know what his deal with ants were.
0: Dave Matthews fan. I should.
1: Um, he also drove around a car that was filled to the roof with cauliflower. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> like one does.
1: Um, he also, so he he wrote actually a couple of books, one of which um, was called The World of Sav- Salvador Dali. And he uh, was signing copies of this book, and he was also attached to... Blood pressure and brainwave monitors. So, customers left with not only a copy of the signed book, but also a printout of his vitals at the time. Yeah,
0: because who doesn't <laughs> want some random artist's vitals?
1: Listen, if that was up for bid on eBay, I would. I think that would be cool.
0: That guy was born a couple decades too early to really make some money.
1: Oh, he would have loved the internet. I feel so when it was in the 60s, um, Dolly returned to New York and he stayed at the St. Regis hotel and the hotel bar basically became his living room. And he hosted all kinds of parties while he was staying there. So this this
0: guy gets better and better.
1: Uh, he's pretty great. Um, Andy Warhol came to visit him while he was spending time there. And at one point Warhol brought him Oh, we should say, in case you don't know, I'm not trying to be exclusive here, Andy Warhol, Um, if you know him, you probably know the Campbell soup cans yep. would probably be the most relatable thing. Or if you you might also know the screen prints of um, Marilyn Monroe in different colors. Yeah. That was also uh, they Warhol.
0: They're both kind of similar where it's like the same picture but with different Repetition. color backgrounds. Yep.
1: backgrounds. Um, we'll get to Warhol at some point. Um, Probably, but so anyway, at one point, Warhol brings Dolly a screen print painting as a gift and Dolly throws it on the ground and pees on it. And Andy Warhol loved it. Thought it was amazing that he did that. <laughs> so they were like, good friends. <laughs> what
0: a weird friendship. Right? <laughs> I love you so much, I'm peeing on your gift. <laughs>
1: like, I don't know. I don't know why. It was probably just more performance art. I should start doing that with my friends. I don't think you should. I don't think I should. <laughs> I don't either. think your friends would appreciate it as much as Warhol. So um, the last two decades of his life were actually the most difficult. He bought a castle for Gala, and she began staying there for weeks at a time, but would forbid Dali to visit without Her permission, yes, and that caused Dolly, understandably, to fear abandonment, and he kind of spiraled into depression. Meanwhile, in her senility, she began dosing him with non-prescribed medication. So there's a lot going on there. So Um, we're gonna
0: go ahead and just edit this out to end about three minutes ago in a happy (laughs) note where he's peeing on Andy Warhol stuff.
1: Sleeping forever. Anyway, <laughs> that's a thing that I said one time. Um, Dolly went through another bout of depression again, understandably, in 1982 after Gala's death, and it's actually rumored that he attempted suicide after oh. that. Which I mean, I'm not saying that I condone suicide, but for someone who was his muse and his inspiration and his business partner for so many years. I get it. It's that a big hole in his Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so one of his biggest achievements during that time was creating the Dali Theater and Museum in Figueres. So it was that same place where he hosted his very first uh, public wow. exhibition and he took drawing classes back in the day. Um, he bought it and created a museum for his art and work. And it opened in 1974, and he died of heart failure and respiratory complications in 1989, while listening to his favorite record, Tristan and Isolde. And he is actually buried under the museum there wow. in Figueres, and this is this is kind of a crazy thing that kind of pulls the whole story back into a circle. Um, this museum is three blocks from the house he was born, and across the street from the church where he was baptized and took his first communion. Wow!
0: And if he had only, if I had only been born three years later, I could have been the reincarnation of Dolly.
1: That's not how any. Maybe sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Wow. So I have one final quote, which I feel like encapsulates the man who was Dolly. This is the quote. Ready?
0: I always.
1: The difference between a madman and me, he said, is that I am not mad.
0: Dolly? <laughs> <laughs> I mean...
1: The man, the myth, the legend.
0: What else can you say? I don't know. Oh, man. I got nothing else. That's it. Yep. Well... That's been Dali. Yep. Uh, I encourage you to go to our Instagram feed and check out some of the pictures, uh, paintings, not pictures. They're probably paintings. Not Anyhow, go over to our Instagram feed and check out what I post there Mm -hmm. and uh, do some Googling because there's some great stuff out there. Uh, One of my other favorite ones, The Temptation of St. Anthony, looks like it is straight from uh, Monty Python. For sure, it's straight out of Monty <laughs> Python. Solid Dolly he is crazy. And uh, if you look up some self-portraits, you'll see some, or not self-portraits, just some pictures of him. You'll see his fabulous mustache, which I aspire to someday.
1: You know, I we went this whole this whole podcast and I failed to mention that he has a ridiculous mustache. It's
0: fantastic.
1: Probably if you've seen any kind of picture of him, you might recognize him. Because of that mustache.
0: Because of the uh, longhorn-like mustache that is on his face. <laughs> it's really Texas ridiculous. Texas longhorn-like mustache. All right. Yep. Well, uh, you got anything else?
1: Um, I would say go check out your local art museum Yeah. or galleries. Uh, yeah. Support local artists where you can.
0: Yeah, I know around here we have uh, First Fridays. Um, mm-hmm. Always an option. A lot of places have that go find some local artists or gallery hops. Yeah. Gallery hops, or maybe even have an art museum close by, uh, look for free days. There's a lot of times you can find some free days to go check out some art, which is always a blast. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And don't forget,
0: hold on, hold on. Uh, before we officially end this thing, I'd like to say thank you to my girl, my whiskey and me for the music we get oh, to use.
1: Absolutely, We love them.
0: They are fantastic. Um, Check out their music. Uh, It's great. We love it. And we love to see them when we can. If you're in the Greenville area, or sometimes even not, if they happen to be in your area, uh, check them out. They're fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's all we got for today. Thanks for listening. Check out our Instagram. If you have any comments, feel free to um, send us a message on Instagram or Twitter, though we don't really use that. Or we have an email, halfwaydocent at gmail.com. And I think that's about it. Yep.
1: And remember, it's just art.